This very special bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore is brought to you by our loyal and generous supporters on Patreon and PayPal. And also, everybody who buys stuff on Amazon.com. Thank you guys very much. We appreciate you. Now, on with the episode. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dalamore. All right. Thank you for joining us. Very special episode. This bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dalamore. I am your host, Jesse Dalamore, and sitting across from me, giddy like a schoolgirl, because she is a schoolgirl, the lovely and talented co-host, Brittany Page. How dare you? (laughs) What do you mean? What did I say that was incorrect? Well, I guess nothing was incorrect, because I am giddy. I'm very excited about the guest that we have on the show. Yes. Yes. It's big time. It is big time, (laughs) for me, especially, because I have been a fan of Dr. Alan Francis for quite some time. Well, you just spoiled it. You spoiled it. It's in the show title. Oh, yeah. I guess you didn't spoil much. Didn't spoil <laughs> anything whatsoever. <laughs> it's in both the show title and the description of the yeah, show. Yeah. So why don't, you, why don't you regale the audience with who, just who in the fuck, Dr. Alan Francis is? Well, of course, we have been talking about this whole issue of people saying that Donald Trump is crazy, right? right. That he has Even, narcissistic personality disorder, right. that he's mentally ill, whatever word you want to use. Even we've had callers call in. Yeah. And then they say something about him being crazy or narcissistic personality, just whatever. Right. And I look across at you and you're, yeah, it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. Not a fan I mean, of it's it. No, it's no surprise to anybody who listens to the show at all. That makes you uncomfortable. You don't believe people should be diagnosed. First of all, you don't believe people who are not trained to diagnose. You don't believe they should be diagnosing, right? which isn't a stretch. Mm-hmm. And then also, you don't think that even professionals who haven't sat down in session with him should be diagnosing. Yes. And Dr. Alan Francis is on the same page here. Well, let's, let's... <laughs> or maybe I'm on his same page, right, right, I guess. Right. He agrees with us. Yeah. So why don't you give like a bio, give a little... A little snippet, little nugget okay, about so who in the hell he is. Dr. Alan Francis is an MD. He was the chair of the DSM-4 task force. Right. Well, the DSM meaning... Not everybody's a nerd. Not everybody's going to know what in the hell you're talking right. about. Sorry about that. The <laughs> Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's like the Bible for shrinks. It is the book that clinicians use to diagnose individuals with mental disorders. It has all of the symptoms, all of the criteria is there, and yeah. you're trained on how to use the book. Yeah. There you go. So in addition to that, he's the former chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Duke University School of Medicine, mm-hmm. and he is also currently Professor Emeritus at Duke. Big time. Yes. And I have read one of his books, Saving Normal, An Insider's Revolt Against the Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life. Yeah, so he, he he's kind of a guy, and I do agree with him in some of this stuff, that he's kind of a guy who believes that ADHD is for sure a thing, but over-diagnosed. Yeah, so he's very 
critical and skeptical of his own field, which I think is a very healthy thing. Yeah. Um, it's also ballsy. Yeah. So he speaks out against the medicalization of everything. Right. Right. And I think. Oh, that, wait, you, you have a seven year old who, who, who won't sit still in class. Oh, my God. There must be something wrong with him. Or maybe he's just a seven year old who won't sit still in class because he's a seven year old. And Dr. <laughs> Dr. Alan Francis, if you follow him on Twitter, he posts things regularly bringing attention to these issues. And the latest issue that he's talking about is how people should not be diagnosing Donald Trump from afar. Yeah. And he he now the, I think the most common diagnosis is narcissistic personality disorder for Do- for Donald Trump that's supposedly. Right, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he Dr. Alan Francis wrote he wrote the criteria under which someone can be diagnosed with that particular affliction that was included. He was the one who wrote the criteria for the DSM. Right. So he's like again Big time. Yeah. Yes. Not, not a dummy. <laughs> uh, no. A pretty good get for the show. Yes. <laughs> I was very pleased to receive a yes response yeah, to my you, interview request. You set it up. Mm-hmm. He, sure did. He probably would just taken a shit right in my mouth <laughs> had I emailed him. Like, get out of here. It's possible. <laughs> it's possible, everybody. Yeah. So he wrote... A letter to the New York Times. Right, letter to the editor. Kind of admonishing his, his well, I guess America. America and his professional colleagues to fucking stop diagnosing Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, speaking generally, I think, to the media, too, um, about the media speculation about what could be going on with his psychological condition. Enough. Yeah. Well, I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right. Well, let's let's get into this. Joining us by the miracle of Skype is Dr. Alan Francis. Dr. Francis, thank you for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. So before we get started here, I want to, I guess, I want to embarrass Brittany. Oh, perfect. Brittany is in her final semester of a three-year program in grad school in clinical psychology, and her nickname... And I'm I'm no shit here. Her nickname, her first semester or first year in grad school was Alan because she was such a fangirl of yours. <laughs> well, let me explain how this all happened. Okay. So in my psychopathology class, my graduate level psychopathology class, we were learning the the new DSM, DSM five. And uh, it was the first time my professor was teaching the class with that new DSM. So she basically wanted us to say, what are we most interested in learning in this new DSM? And my answer was that I was most interested to learn about the changes and the research behind the need for those changes because I had been following Dr. Francis for a long time. I read his book, Saving Normal, and he was very critical of the changes uh, from DSM-4 to DSM-5. So I I (laughs) had the nickname Alan because of my appreciation for Dr. Francis and my kind of skeptical approach, I guess. I guess you have, you have my apologies and my commiserations. 
<laughs> I never liked the name much myself. <laughs> I feel sorry if I pass it on to you. <laughs> Try growing up a, a red-headed kid named Jesse, please. You, Alan is great. <laughs> So I, I read your letter to the editor in the New York Times, and I saw the interview that you did with Don Lemon just a couple of days ago. And you have this unique ability to refer to Donald Trump as a, as a con man and say that he's unsuitable for office without suggesting that these descriptions of his character are as a result of a mental illness. So I'm wondering if you can explain this approach to analyzing Donald Trump and his behavior. And for our audience, how do you distinguish between his character flaws with out attributing them to mental illness like so many people are doing today? Well, there's nothing unique about it. Um, you just have to keep clear that bad people are bad people and people with mental illness are people with mental illness and that the two very rarely um, coexist. But most people who are mentally ill are very nice people. Uh, I've known thousands. Most of them are decent, well-mannered, honest, good people to be with. Donald Trump is none of those things. So to lump the very, in most instances, very fine people who are mentally ill with Donald Trump is really to insult them. And it bespeaks it a much, much deeper and, and I think horrible thing about the way we've conceived of mental illness, that we've criminalized the mentally ill. We now have 350,000 mentally ill patients in prison because they weren't treated and they did nuisance crimes and there's no place else to put them. So we've criminalized the mentally ill. At the same time, there's a tendency to facilely say that every time someone does something bad, that they're mentally ill. But every time there's a mass murderer, the first thought is he must have been mentally ill. We should be thinking about the guns, but the first thought is he must have been mentally ill. Um, we have 5,000 rapists in California who are in mental hospitals because uh, people didn't want them on the streets. They have no mental illness, but they've been civilly committed to mental hospitals. We tend to confuse terrorists with mental illness. Terrorists are political um, opponents who will do ruthless things. That doesn't make them mentally ill. And every time we equate badness with mental illness, we're insulting the mentally ill. Every time we equate mental illness with a reason for being in jail instead of in treatment, we're terribly neglecting and treating them in a medieval way. So I think it's, it's very important that we make a, a sharp distinction that most behavior that's bad has nothing to do with mental illness and that most people with mental illness don't do things that are bad. Well, how, do you, how would you propose um, both you know, laymen like me, dumb guys like me, and professionals like you where does where does the work start, or even policymakers in Washington and, and in the state houses across the country? Where does the work start at distinguishing between assholes and people who who <laughs> who really who suffer from from a legitimate illness? Well, first of all, if we should be aware of the fact that that uh, being narcissistic is a pretty good qualification for leadership. The, the reason this trait exists so much in our population is that it's been quite adaptive, uh, that narcissists feel comfortable taking command and people feel comfortable following them. Uh, There's an analysis about a year or two ago in the New York Times on ratings of the presidents on their narcissism, ratings of the presidents on their effectiveness. And what they found was that the narcissists were among 
the best and the worst of presidents. That this is a trait that can lead to uh, great leadership, and it's also a trait that can lead to absolutely terrible leadership. And we shouldn't assume that the good leadership or bad leadership has to do with mental illness. It may have to do with narcissism. Trump is certainly a world-class narcissist, but that doesn't mean he's mentally ill. And I think that the people who've been trying to press the issue of mental illness on Trump as a way of delegitimizing him mean very well. They're psychologists and psychiatrists, and their tools are, are, are psychological um, motivations and psychiatric diagnoses. And they're using the tools that they're familiar with as a way of trying to discredit him. But it's a, it's a futile gesture. It's insulting to the mentally ill, as I said before. And in political terms, Donald Trump is not going to be removed from office by uh, 25,000, 50,000, 100,000 mental health professionals signing a document. Right. He has to be fought politically. And it's a distraction to assume that the problem is Trump's mental health. It underestimates him and it underestimates the movement that surrounds him. I think this is the biggest threat to American democracy in the history of our country. And I think to, to uh, minimize that threat by attributing the problem to his mental health is greatly to underestimate him, greatly to underestimate the threat, and to use the wrong tool. The only way that he will be stopped is politically. And I think everyone needs to focus on that. I, I completely agree with that. I'm, I'm kind of wondering, <laughs> are you looking for a side gig? Because I, you need to come on board and just be like the third co-host of the show. <laughs> it, would, uh, it would take the load off of Brittany because she's not in good shape right now. <laughs> well, yeah, it seems like people are kind of conflating this idea of world-class narcissist with narcissistic personality disorder. And in that letter to the editor at the New York Times, you said that Donald Trump, quote, causes severe distress rather than experiencing it and has been richly rewarded rather than punished for his behavior. So if Donald Trump is or has experienced distress, what would that look like? What could people look for to be able to make that distinction? Well, it goes to a deeper point. Why is the narcissistic personality disorder in DSM at all? And actually, they were thinking of eliminating it in DSM-5 well before Trump um, made that a, a better idea than we could have imagined before. The reason the diagnosis, and I actually wrote the criteria for it in 1978, the reason the diagnosis is in the manual is that people with this personality type do appear in clinicians' offices. Mm-hmm. And this manual is not to discuss political figures. No one dreamed that it would be used as a tool um, in, in, in trying to save democracy from Donald Trump. The manual <laughs> is, is meant for clinicians. It's meant to help them to diagnose patients and also help them get paid for treating patients. So the reason it's there is that people with this personality disorder do appear in offices when things go sour. Things are going fine in their life. They often you know, ride the wave. Right. But if if their wife is divorcing them because they're a jerk, if they lose their job because they're a schmuck, if um, <laughs> they get old and they no longer feel the attractiveness, if they lose their power with time, when there's a narcissistic disappointment, they will often feel a, a great deal of sadness and and bewilderment and anger. You're, you're describing Most me. Often, you're describing me to a T right now. So I just, 
Get out of my head. Well, if, he has, if he has that much insight, I'm not so sure you're making the right self-diagnosis. But I think the point is that the, the, the point for, for our discussion here is that usually the diagnosis is used not when someone self-professes, as you have, to be disturbed by it when they're doing well. It's usually either they're doing badly and they come in with depression. They don't come in and say, you know, I'm a narcissistic personality, so I'd like to change that. They right. come in with the world's disappointing me, something's going wrong. And most often, in, in my experience, they don't self-present. It's usually, I'm going to lose my wife if I don't come here. She's making me come. Right. Or my boss says, I better get it together or I'm going to be in trouble. It's usually not something that the person himself is saying, uh, I have to fix this. It's usually the world is letting me down. If I don't do something, I'm going to be in even deeper trouble. And and when you said that the the DSM is really meant for clinicians, right, not the general population to use, it kind of reminds me of people who talk about going to WebMD <laughs> and looking up um, their diagnosis, right, reading the, the list of symptoms and giving themselves cancer based on how they're feeling. And I'm almost wondering if psychology did this to itself. That is, is the fact that regular people believe they're capable of making diagnoses without training or education in the field. Is this symptomatic of the general population's view of psychology? Well, you know, it cuts both ways because one of the things I think is very important, um, especially with the confusion in medical circles and psychological circles, the fact that um, it's very hard to find a doctor to talk to uh, that, um, I don't trust doctors that much, but I'm very much on the side of being an informed consumer. I think that it's, it's a, the internet in some ways is a wonderful vehicle to empower patients. I'm not just talking about, not even primarily talking about psychology and psychiatry and general medicine as well. The third leading cause of death in America is medical mistakes. So I think every person needs to protect themselves by finding out as much as possible. Now, can that sometimes be abused? Can that sometimes lead to self-misdiagnosis like your buddy just did? Sure <laughs> it can. But uh, in general, I think that it's a better world the more the people do try to figure themselves out. And um, it's a worse world when psychiatric terms are used for name-calling. Name-calling against Donald Trump, name-calling against your wife when she disappoints you in one way or another, uh, name calling against your kids, you know, you have oppositional defiance disorder. I don't think the term should be used flippantly and carelessly, but I think on the other hand, knowing a lot about the, the diagnosis you're given is very important because so often it'll be wrong. Lots of people are being overdiagnosed now with attention deficit disorder, with autism, with bipolar disorder, and I don't think on face value someone should necessarily trust the, the diagnosis they get. They should get second opinions, and one of those second opinions can be their own. So uh, if I'm hearing you right, you you would be a proponent of people in your profession shutting the hell up and not diagnosing from afar, Donald Trump specifically. Definitely, yes. I think what they should be doing is joining the political cause. And the way Trump needs to be delegitimized is that he's a two-bit two dictator who's already um, attempted a number of moves that are absolutely terrifying. Disenfranchising the press 
and developing your own version of reality, and also they develop their own version of media. Yeah, there's a whole media conglomerate out there, very well funded, pouring out lies. Uh, that's a direct threat to democracy. Je- Jefferson said at the very beginning of, of our republic that a free pe- press is essential to our freedoms, and it can't be a partially free press. That the more you diminish the, the press, the more you limit American democracy. The fact that he's challenging the courts and saying they have no jurisdiction over the travel ban and that um, national security is the top priority. That's a, a play out of Hitler's playbook. Yeah. The, the, uh, there's an enabling act in um, 1934 that gave Hitler, it was a simple little act that Parliament went along with that gave him plenary powers, and he became Hitler uh, based on just signing a document. I think, you know, about Godwin's Law, that you're not supposed to discuss comparisons to Hitler because every discussion will lead to them within a few minutes. Right. I think Godwin, Godwin himself says, we're allowed to compare Trump to Hitler because <laughs> this is a special circumstance. Well, let me... He's willing for us to break his law. This, this, and now we're kind of... We're now into my territory in the politics, but I... I'm of the opinion, I think Donald Trump is, well, I kind of, I vacillate from day to day, but I think Donald Trump is, he stumbled into this totalitarian type of uh, fascist behavior. I think he's just a really, you know, pardon pardon my, my language, I think he's just a fucking dumb guy. And I don't think he understands that he's not a dictator who rules with an iron fist and that he has a judiciary and a legislative branch co-equals to, to govern with, not rule over. So I, I don't really think that necessarily he's he has these machinations. I think he's just has needs a, a, an eighth grade civics lesson. My reaction to that is I don't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> you just committed the sin of psychological. A psychoanalyzing Trump and figuring out what goes on in his mind. <laughs> and to me, that's very problematic because while you're wondering whether he's a evil genius or a dumb schmuck who happened to got, get lucky, uh, they're taking over the government. And it's not just him. Whatever his motivations are, you have Bannon. Yeah. And you have, you have a whole Republican um, machinery. You're that's right. Been wait, waiting for this moment. Um, I think I, there was once uh, an episode about a year and a half ago when a TV producer asked me to go on a national TV program and diagnose Trump. It was just the beginning of the campaign when he entered it. And I said, um, I can't because of ethical rules. I can't because I don't think he has a diagnosis. But I can, as a layman, tell you, I think he's a classic schmuck. <laughs> and she... Nope. She said immediately, you know, that's not really newsworthy. Everyone knows that. <laughs> um, did, when, did they take, is, when did they take classic schmuck out of the DSM? Was that the DSM-3? <laughs> but but the, 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 the point is that I think I underestimated them. And um, badly underestimated them. And because someone is ignorant, it's almost like there's only a certain amount of brain space. And sometimes... If you're really ignorant in most other ways, maybe you're really good at certain things. And when it comes to being a con man, Donald Trump is up there. When it comes to understanding the uh, fears and the vulnerabilities of a forgotten group of people in America who've been screwed by the system, 
Donald Trump understood them, and the Democrats haven't. Yeah. The, the Democrats have represented much more faithfully the forgotten people in America. The Republicans have consistently screwed them. But the Republicans have understood their psychology much better and have exploited it much more skillfully. And Donald Trump had some magic to get where he, I mean, given the fact that he is such a classic schmuck, given the fact that you'd expect everyone in the world to just see through him in 10 minutes, the fact that he's gotten to where he is shows that he has a unique gift. And I don't think it matters the degree to which he's running the show on a day-to-day basis. He's a face man for a group of very, very determined, very, very smart, very, very cynical people who represent the greatest threat to American democracy in, in the 240 years we've had it. So I wouldn't underestimate the guy. I wouldn't see it. It's like the movie Getting, what was it called? The one with Peter Sellers. Um, seeing There. Oh, yeah. There's a movie about Peter, about Peter Sellers becoming president, even though he's mentally retarded because he's right in the right place at the right time. I wouldn't assume that Donald Trump is where he is just because he's lucky. I would assume he, he's where he is because the society is very sick and has left out lots of people and the inequality is absurd and he's able to take advantage of that. I wouldn't assume that uh, because he's an idiot in so many other ways that he's not an evil genius in this very isolated way. And certainly he's picked people who understand the way to establish a devilish narrative that would, it's so simple. I mean, we, we're living in a time without a Great Depression. There was a Great Depression when Hitler took over. Yeah, yeah. We're living with a, in a place that hasn't had much terrorist activity. Well, I, I... It will be very simple when the chips are down here, when, um, the, you know, suppose someone blows up JFK and kills a thousand people. It would be so easy for Donald Trump to step in and say, we have anarchy, and I have to save this country. Well, I think, one, you make a very salient point. Um, Clearly, you you made a salient point about the the Steve Bannon and the Stephen Millers and these, you know, bad actors that he surrounded himself by. And it kind of goes back to the same thing you wrote in in your letter about bad behavior. You know, maybe they shouldn't, they should not be diagnosed either because their bad behavior doesn't really align with what happens with so many mental people who suffer from mental illness that they're just trying to get through their day and they're not acting poorly. Well, and, and Dr. Francis, do you find that that is still a controversial statement when you say that bad behavior is rarely a sign of mental illness? Well, you know, I think that the rate of violence amongst the mentally ill is about three times the rate of violence amongst people who don't have mental illness. But it accounts for less than 5% of all the violence. So is it yeah. a predictor of a slightly increased rate of violence? Sure. You know, it's, you know, from 1% to 3%. But most violence is not mentally ill. The most excusable violence is the person's mentally ill and commits a violent act because he could not get treatment. Right. But that's very, very, very rare. Right. And when we attribute the violence in the world to mentally ill, we're missing the point. Here's the really weird thing. You know what the NRA got through Congress and signed by your president? The NRA has um, convinced Congress and and, uh, your president 
to sign a bill that makes it easy now for the mentally ill to get guns. Yeah. And this this is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. The NRA, whenever there's a mass murder, the NRA says, well, that person was crazy. It wasn't the guns who at fault here. It's the crazy person. Let's analyze his motivations. At the same time, in a, a, a kind of cynicism that really stuns, they're giving the mentally ill guns. Right. Well, again, it's Wayne LaPierre is... Uh, he's a bad person. That, that that guy doesn't have, you know, he lacks. Maybe he's a, maybe he suffers from sociopathy. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm going to diagnose him right here on the show. Here's my problem with you. You're an amateur psychiatrist. I mean, I, I, I feel like I have no problems with, with your friend Alan there, but I have a lot of problems with you. You're trying to psychoanalyze everyone. It doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what his what, what Lapierre's diagnosis. Is. It doesn't matter who he is. It's the organization. D- Dr. Francis, I, 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 think, I'm, listen. I think you got to look behind the personalities at the organizational political structure. I, I need a, I need to correct you. I need to correct you. I'm an amateur everything. <laughs> 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 so you're, you're writing a book on this, on this amazing topic, death and life of American sanity, a psychiatrist perspective in the age of Trump. Well, it's weird. It's a weird, it's a weird thing because the book started, a year or two before Trump declared. And the focus then was on American sanity and uh, lack thereof, the fact that we were ignoring the big problems in the world, that we weren't paying attention to overpopulation, global warming, resource depletion, um, the fact that we were wiping out species like crazy. And then Trump came and made what was a crazy enough world really insane in, in a way that I certainly didn't predict. And so the book has pivoted some to the fact that hey, I thought it was pretty bad before, but it's much worse than we thought. And the main saving grace here, it's possible, just possible, that uh, Trump is the person we needed. That he's the wake-up call. Sure, and some he people tipped said the we scales. Need creative destruction. I thought that was crazy. But if it turns out that the opposition to Trump is not just to him personally, not just to the threat to democracy but also to the crazy societal delusions that have us blindly walking into global warming that's going to destroy you know, maybe half the world's population, be terrible for our children. If he's the wake-up call that gets us serious about the world's problems, it w- would have been more than, more than worth it. Well, and I think your your book is so important because many people are falling into that trap of just continuing to talk about how stupid Donald Trump is or how crazy he is or whatever the label is, rather than, okay, no, let's take a step back, look at this globally, and how can we really take this on? Because no one's listening to these criticisms of Donald Trump. It's what can we do to criticize the policy? What can we do to take on the the party that that's behind him, that's backing him, right? It needs to be this global perspective. One of the things I did in the book was go over the polling results on most of the issues facing America today. And the issues facing us are usually issues also facing the rest of the world because what we do has such a dramatic impact on, on the whole world. And there's a majority uh, of Americans in favor of most of the right things. Sure. That if you look at the last 40 years, the American public has been pretty stable around uh, reasonable um, feelings about what we should be doing about global warming, uh, about um, abortion, about taxes. That the, the majority of the American people 
have a crowdsourcing wisdom and want the right things. If you look at the Senate roll call votes, it's become remarkably a straight line up polarization. The people haven't become more polarized, but the politics have. And that's happened, I think, exclusively because of fake astroturf populism. That the Koch brothers and, and their brethren have been able to skillfully shape a political agenda that gives them um, a kind of gerrymandered um, voting power, money uh, against people, far beyond um, th- their real approval within the American population. The result of that's Trump. Uh, until well, the, until the this year. Call, let me just one last thing. One last thing. The wake up call here might be a different kind of populism that has the values and the interests of the American people at heart, not not just the elite few who are f- funding the AstroTurf Tea Party. But if Trump leads to the kind of excitement uh, that looked like it might happen at the beginning of the Obama administration was move on, but didn't, that would be the great effect of a terrible time in our history. Yeah. Well, I was, I, I, I was just trying to wedge a point in there that Trump's weird flavor of populism overrode the the Koch brothers effect and their influence this election cycle because they were decidedly anti-Trump the entire time and somehow yeah, I think that's a fake I think that's a fake um, distinction without a difference because they've been very influential in the transition <laughs> and the people who are put in power Trump doesn't know doesn't have the skills to go deep into the bureaucracy they do sure and so they've I think that they were pushed aside. In, in a personality struggle with Trump. But if you look at the long-term political effects, it's equivalent. He, he's, he was able to, because of his celebrity, he was able to leapfrog them into the presidency. Sure. But I think in terms of the long-term movement of the fake populists, um, they're indistinguishable. I, 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 do, I do agree with that. So uh, I'm going to, we'll wrap it up, but I want to say this. I'm, I'm very pleased that finally I've had a guest on my show that, I, that agrees with me on every single thing that I say. <laughs> Usually I'm disagreed with quite a bit, but you, Dr. Francis, you, you really, you rallied behind my, <laughs> Jesse Dollimore and agreed with everything that he says. Except for, except for one thing. <laughs> except for I don't like your amateur psychoanalyzing people. Just stay, stick to politics. <laughs> well, half my audience thinks I'm an amateur at that, too. So, listen, we, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, we look sure. forward to your book. Do you, have, uh, do you have a date that it might be uh, hitting the shelves? Oh, I'm literally finishing it tonight. Oh, wow. It's an amazing coincidence. Yeah, I'm finishing. I have one section left on modern populism. And it's about four paragraphs long, and then I'm done. The rest of the book is at the editor now. That is beautiful. When it comes out, we'd love to have you back on to talk about it because hey, clearly, be my pleasure. It is. It th- these are these are uh, tenuous times, and you know we we need some some salient logic to kind of wade through the the mire. And actually, the stuff the stuff's just common sense. I think people just have to use their common sense. There's too little of that. Can, can we agree on that? That's for sure. So uh, thanks for coming on. We appreciate your time, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, Dr. Francis. Okay, you guys are fine. Good night. Uh, That was uh, was pretty good. Mm -hmm. 
I'm <laughs> I think I'm kind of a fanboy. Yeah. Yeah. Converted. Like you, you you were a fan. Yes. And I think I'm I'm on board now. Yeah. Well, listen, Twitter is my favorite social network and I actually stumbled upon him via Twitter. And following his Twitter page is what really made me a fan because you can tell that he's passionate about the field, that he cares about truth. And about politics, apparently. And about (laughs) politics. And I want to know and follow as many of those types of people as possible. So I'm really thankful that he took the time to come on the show and talk to us. And it was awesome. Yeah. Super awesome. So I guess that's it. We will leave you there. We appreciate you guys joining us for this very special bonus episode. If you have questions, shoot them at us. 657-464-7609. Of course, you can always email a voice memo from your smartphone to idoubtit at dollamore.com. We also take regular old emails there. And we're going to leave you there. We appreciate your guys' support. If you'd like to support the show, other than listening twice a week or reviewing us on iTunes, which helps us out so much, you can go to dollamore.com on the left-hand side of the page. There's a link there that says support the show. There you can get, donate via PayPal. You can donate via Patreon. You can buy something on Amazon. The other thing that you can do is if you're not subscribed to the show via iTunes, wow, what are you waiting for? Get out there, subscribe on iTunes, help us out. Help us move the conversation forward episode by episode. We love you guys, and until next time, for Brittany Page, I am Jesse Dollimore, and this is Ben. I doubt it. My reaction to that is, I don't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> the-